the fundamental point uh, that I want to make today is that while economic theory describes people as managing their maximizing their own utility and subject to constraints, uh, most people have a lot of trouble doing that, particularly as regards investing in financial markets. Most people are confused and uh, find it just very difficult. And so um, we have an industry of people who help people with their uh, investments. Uh, and we, moreover, have a whole array of regulations uh, regulating the industry of, of people who help others with their investments. The problem is that most people are not that good at, at dealing in financial markets. They're mysterious, they're difficult, and moreover, uh, there's a tendency of psychological biases that <coughs> cause people to get into mistakes. Uh, we talked about overconfidence, that most people think they're smarter than others. And it seems like people can easily get um, overconfident about their ability to beat the market. Uh, and what naturally happens, if not regulated, is that there will be others who will victimize and exploit these people. So the classic story is <coughs> some kind of stockbroker <coughs> who uh, promises to make great wealth for you by, by trading your portfolio, uh, and uh, in fact uh, doesn't really know anything. The guy is just a, a showman who is just uh, pretending. Uh, there was a 1940s book uh, called Where Are the Customers' Yachts, <laughs> which uh, was a best-selling book. The title refers to the fact that stockbrokers give the impression that, oh, I deal with a very wealthy, successful crowd of people, and you are now one of the chosen people that I'm managing for. And so some stockbrokers will pretend to be very wealthy, create the appearance of that, like they're associated with the rich people. And it draws people in, um, but in fact, the customers often don't do very well because the stockbroker may churn their portfolio, keep coming up with new trades, and the broker is making money from commissions, and um, uh, that's the kind of problem that arises. So as a result, a lot of people recognize the importance of giving help to people, uh, and so that's what we're talking about. I want to talk mostly about. Uh, portfolio managers, uh, but I, I first talk about uh, financial advisors. Uh, and also financial planners. Uh, and then I'll move to uh, fiduciaries or, or institutional investors. <coughs> so, we do not live in a world where people freely do business as they would like. The financial world is especially heavily regulated. Okay. So, the first thing is financial advisor. Uh, again, most people don't know uh, about these markets, and they need someone to give them advice. So, people set themselves up as financial advisors. Uh, and uh, in most countries, these are re heavily regulated by the government. Uh, in the United States, 
Now, what is, a, what is a financial advisor? I should define that for you. It's someone who gives it advice about investments for some kind of fee or commission. All right? Uh, it excludes lawyers, bankers, insurance salesmen, reporters for newspapers, professors. Even though these people may all give financial advice, it's not considered as part of law to be uh, central to what they do. And so they are ex excluded from the definition of financial advisor. Uh, it also excludes broker-dealers. If someone presents himself or herself just as a broker, that's someone you can call up and say, I want to buy 100 shares of GM or whatever, and the person does the deal, does the trade for you. That is also not a financial advisor, even if that person uh, occasionally dispenses advice. It's only incidental to the business. <coughs> financial advisors include people who present themselves as offering advice to individuals, and also it includes um, analysts. So uh, these are regulated, and there's something called the National Securities Markets Improvement Act of 1996. National Securities Market Improvement Act says that all financial advisors with less than 25 million under management must regulate must register with their state uh, regulator, and if it's greater than 30 million, they must register with the SEC in Washington, Securities and Exchange Commission. If it's between, they can choose. <laughs> Uh, either one. Uh, so they're all regulated, okay? And uh, the uh, government uh, wants to be sure that financial advisors are, uh, know uh, what good practice is, and so that means they have to take an exam, and the exam is administered by uh, what's called FINRA, which you should know. Uh, that is, uh, what is it? <laughs> uh, Financial Institutions Regulatory Authority, formerly called NASD. See how this is getting complicated. NASD is National Association of Securities Dealers, and they started the NASDAQ Stock Market Index, which you hear about all the time. NASDAQ is NASD automa Automated Quotation System. But NASD merged with the New York Stock Exchange Regulatory Authority last year. And so they've been renamed as FINRA, okay? These are all these institutional details that I, I want you to know uh, because it, it's, it's boring, maybe, but I think it's what's true. It's what's happening. This is what drives every, so much that happens. So FINRA says that if you want to become a financial advisor, you have to pass a series, they call it Series 65 or 66 exam, and then you are eligible, according to FINRA, uh, now it, FINRA is an example of a SRO, a self-regulatory organization. The government in the United States doesn't want to be making all the rules, so they allow industry groups to form their own self-policing organizations. Uh, and so FINRA is the organization for financial advisors, and that is a, an SRO, and the SEC accepts their licensing. So that's what you have to do to become a financial advisor. 
Uh, you have to take these exams, join FINRA, then you go to the SEC, and then you register uh, as a financial advisor. Um, and so the exams would warn you about all kinds of bad practices uh, that, for example, uh, about churning a portfolio. I just mentioned what they did, but repeat it. That's when you call the guy up every day and you say, I just got a hot new idea for you. Of course, yesterday you bought, <laughs> you know, you bought Microsoft. Oh, sell that. Move to this. Uh, and they just keep calling you up. And that's, that's uh, it's a way to get delicensed if you, if, you're, if you are caught doing that, because it can't work. If you trade every day, there's no, it's virtually impossible to make money. Uh, because the commissions will eat you alive, and unless it, you know, you know these guys who are churning are fakes, because they they can't be getting a new idea every day. So that's the kind of thing. Now financial planners are um, are a little different. Uh, they uh, the designation of financial planner is not regulated directly, but we do have a self-regulatory association. Uh, that uh, manage, manages them. Uh, so uh, we have the Financial Planning Association, or that's their website, uh, uh, fpa.org, uh, and they uh, license, well, they, they provide their own designation. This is how it works uh, in, in the U.S., particularly. Uh, they, they will uh, certify someone as a certified financial planner. And uh, FPA will require that every financial planner first become a financial advisor. Uh, so that's, uh, this is a big organization that, incidentally, if anyone ever asks you, I need investment advice, where do I get it? Uh, it might be a good idea to direct them to that website because they'll help you get a financial planner, which is more than a broker. It's supposed to actually be planning uh, for your life, and that, that's the essential economic problem that we face. Uh, stock brokers will often, you know, th this comes back to what uh, Henry Paulson said in his proposal for re reorganization of our financial markets. He thought, and I think this may reflect some essential wisdom, that we should have objectives-based regulation. Each organization should be focused on an objective. And I think the objective of the organization affects what you do. So if you are a stock broker, and if you present yourself as someone who will buy and sell stocks for you, you're probably not going to get into financial planning with your clients. But if it's, if it's on your title, if you're, you write this after your name, you're John Doe CFP, then it says planner in your title. I think that affects what you do. And it tell, what financial planners do is they say, let's sit down and think about your life goals. And you know, do you expect to have children? Are you going to send them to college? Uh, and you know, this kind of thought, which is very important. Uh, there's another one called, this is for financial advisors, NAPFA.org, National Association of personal financial advisors. And if someone asks you, uh, where should I go for advice, this is another good website to go to, because uh, what I like about NAFA.org is that 
they have all of their advisors sign a statement that they will be fee-only advisors, and they will never steer someone toward an investment that provides a kickback to them. That, that's a problem, is that often a, f a financial advisor uh, will be really trying to make money, selling you things that uh, provides uh, uh, money. They're not unbiased, but NAPFA uh, is part of their code of ethics that they're completely separate from any, uh, any organization. They're pure financial advisors, and, and they don't make money from commissions. It's only from the hourly fee. So anyway, what else? So that's basically what I was going to say about uh, financial advisors. Uh, it's a big industry, and it's important. Uh, and actually, in my new book, uh, I have n I have no <laughs> I should say I have no connection to this industry whatsoever. But I actually was uh, uh, saying that I think as a national policy we should subsidize this industry. I think people need more financial advice. Uh, most people are just not with it enough. They're not getting the basic wisdom uh, that, uh, and so I think if if we need more of this, we should subsidize it. I was just in Mexico uh, over the weekend, and I uh, had the opportunity to meet the president of Mexico, which was exciting. And I, I also uh, heard him uh, say that he thinks Mexico needs more development of financial culture. And this seems to be the thing, that not enough Mexicans are really used to dealing with sophisticated financial institutions, and so that's where we have to go with <coughs> Mexico. But I was saying, well, it's just the same in every country, I think. Uh, there's a problem. So, uh, uh, but the other thing, so that's, I, I won't say more about financial advisors, but uh, uh, let's move now to the other way that happens is that people will turn over their, uh, uh, actually, I'm going to come back to trusts in a, later, but let me. The other, the really big industry that manages people's financial problems for them are institutional investors. And these are uh, groups that, uh, organizations that pool money from many people and uh, invest a portfolio for them. Uh, and I wanted to uh, start by emphasizing how important they are. Uh, and I wanted to just present you with the balance sheet for households and nonprofits, uh, as, uh, and just get some idea of, of how important institutional investors are. They're more important than these financial advisors, because most of people's wealth is really managed by institutions. You don't have to ask any question. They d you don't have to do anything. It's all done for you. Uh, so uh, just to, to um, I wanted to show the balance sheet. of households and nonprofits. And that's table B100 of the uh, flow of funds account. This is for the United States, but I think it would be similar in other countries. Um, and uh, so we have assets on one side, and we have liabilities on another. So we'll have assets 
and then we'll have liabilities. You might wonder, why do we put households and nonprofits together? It's really because there are three types of persons that own things. There's individuals or natural persons. There are nonprofit organizations which are like individuals because nobody owns them. They own themselves. They're like people, in contrast to corporations that are owned by individuals. And then we also have the government as the third. So this is the non-government balance sheet. And so it's just about everything uh, in this country. And I just wanted to review. This is from the Federal Reserve, and these are estimates, of course, and subject to error. But uh, and this is for um, 2007 fourth quarter, which is the latest data. Okay, so assets are things that people own, and liabilities are things that people owe. Okay, and your net worth is your assets minus your liabilities. Um, so let's start with assets. What do you? Th uh, well, I won't ask you to guess. <laughs> the, uh, the biggest asset that uh, people own in the United States that households own is and nonprofits. This is almost entirely households, though nonprofits are small compared to households. Real estate is the biggest thing, and that is 22. Um, four eight three billion dollars, or twenty-two trillion dollars, uh, and people own this directly. It's their house. But the second most, the second biggest thing, is pension funds, and that is um, twelve billion. I mean, it's twelve trillion. Twelve. Uh, uh, billion, twelve thousand seven hundred and seventy-nine billion. Okay, so uh, that comes after right after real estate. Uh, and then we have equity in non-corporate business, and that is um, seven three eight nine. I'm sorry, I'm reading the, reading the wrong line. Seven eight nine two. It's almost eight billion. What, what is non-corporate business? It's, it's businesses run by individuals. So it's like the you know, if a family runs a little grocery store, uh, then their ownership of that is represented here as non-corporate business. Or if, you, if you're a barber and you've got your little barber shop, um, it all adds up. They valued all these businesses and they valued them up totally as worth eight trillion uh, dollars. Uh, and then we have. Corporate equities, that's stock, uh, and, and uh, that is five, four, four, seven billion, or about five trillion. Um, that's stocks owned directly by households. Uh, and then uh, we have mutual funds. And mutual funds are institutional investors that invest in stocks or bonds, uh, but usually it's mostly stocks. Five oh eight two uh, trillion. So it's almost as big as corporate equities held directly. Um, and then there's consumer durables. 
that means your car, your furniture. Um, that's 4,082. Uh, I'm sorry, 4,035 billion uh, bonds. I'm running out of room here. 2,730. Not so much. Not as big. Uh, insurance. I'm, I'm, I have everything ranked by size, so we're going down the scale. Insurance is um, this is life insurance, one two o five, and then I'm running out of room at the bottom. This, there's some other minor categories, uh, but the total is I'll write it up here since I, I would normally put it at the bottom, but I'm out of room at the bottom. The total assets uh, total is. Seventy-two oh nine three billion dollars. So seventy-two trillion dollars. Liabilities of households um, are mortgages, home mortgages, and that's ten five oh nine. Consumer credit. That's uh, credit cards. Installment credit of various types, two five five one billion. Uh, loans and other, uh, one three one five billion, and the total uh, and the total liabilities is um, fourteen three one five. So people own. Seventy-two trillion. They owe fourteen trillion. The difference is net worth uh, is um, um, fifty-seven seven one eight billion. So that's about one hundred ninety-two thousand dollars per person in the United States. It's unequally held. This is just consolidating everybody. It's unequally held. Uh, because uh, uh, rich people own more of <laughs> this than poor people, but in the average family of four has about eight hundred thousand. I'm just multiplying uh, my one hundred ninety-two thousand by four, so we have a lot of wealth. But the point here is, what form is it in? Well, real estate is very unmanaged. People own their own homes, uh, and there's not much institutional involvement, except through the mortgage. Note that they owe about half. They only own about half of their home. The average person owes on the mortgage almost half the value of the home. Okay. So if you took net worth in real estate, it would be uh, only like twelve trillion, right? Assets minus real estate liability. So by that account, the biggest uh, asset that people have is apparently their pension fund. Uh, that's huge. And that is institutional investors. The thing I wanted to make, the point I wanted to make about this is that institutional investors dominate just about everything. I mean, you've got real estate and non-corporate business, which are not easily managed by institutional investors. Beyond that, uh, it's mostly institutional, uh, mutual funds, uh, well, and insurance. So uh, we, we live in a country where things are done. Are managed by uh, professional investors. 
Uh, so uh, maybe I'll just start on this board. Uh, so, uh, so let's just talk about a mutual. What is a mutual fund? Um, a mutual fund refers to a structure of an investment company. Uh, they're much more important than hedge funds. Hedge funds are, we talked about those before, are designed for a small group of wealthy investors. Mutual funds are for the general public. Uh, and the reason they're called mutual is that the fund is owned by the investors in it. Uh, and uh, the first mutual fund uh, was called MIT. Uh, no connection with Massachusetts Institute of Technology. This was the Massachusetts Investors Trust uh, in the 1920s. Uh, and at that time, there were a lot of investor funds uh, that were not relatively unregulated, uh, and they were offering investments to people that were uh, oversold often. Uh, and often, uh, there were classes of shareholders. There was a, uh, a, a, a class of prime shareholders who got m the profits from the enterprise, and then there was a class of other shareholders who were the uh, hoi polloi. Who, um, and and a after 1929, many of the investment funds crashed and burned, and people got very upset. They were very upset, particularly that the investment fund was really being run for the profit and benefit of the guys who started the fund, not all the people who were in there. And so after 1929, there was a looking around as how should investment funds really be organized? And then attention became focused on MIT because it was an honest fund. Uh, and they thought this should be the model for uh, our investment fund industry. What, what Massachusetts Investment Trust did is they said everybody is equal and we're completely open about what we do. We publish our portfolio. Uh, and most investment funds were secret. They were saying, well, we're going to beat the market. We're not going to publish what we're doing. The MIT published its portfolio, and it had only one class of investors. In fact, the fund was owned by the investors. It's a mutual fund. So if you put money in, you join the crowd. We invest for you. Uh, and if you want to take your money out, we'll share your proportion of the whole portfolio. That was the concept. So the concept uh, became very uh, widely respected, and the whole industry grew. The Investment Act of 1940, uh, the Investment Company Act of uh, 1940, it doesn't actually define mutual funds, but it defines structures that are used by mutual funds. And so after, uh, after the Investment Company Act, uh, starting in the 1950s, mutual funds began to grow and grow. Uh, and um, uh, they are regulated in such a way that, uh, the, as I've said, all, everyone is equal in the fund. Everyone benefits from the portfolio in an, uh, in an equal way. And the, the rule is that if... Uh, you don't buy and sell shares in the mutual fund. The sh fund owns shares. You're putting money into the fund. And if you want to get money out of the fund, you call them up, or, or maybe you can do it on the web. 
and you, you say you place an order to withdraw money from the fund. Well, what they will do when you withdraw money is they wait until 4 p.m. Uh, on the day uh, of your order, uh, and then uh, they calculate what your share of the fund would be based on 4 p.m. is when the stock markets close, uh, and so at 4 p.m. you would get out at those prices. Uh, and that was considered a fair and honest thing uh, to do. They don't charge high uh, management fees. Uh, there's uh, rules about that. Uh, and so uh, uh, they have their own SRO uh, called ICI, uh, Investment Company Institute, that was created, I believe, in the 1940s. So this has become the structure for the way most people, well, half. People, most small investors do not own corporate equity directly. They own mutual funds. Uh, there have been some scandals about mutual fund um, that uh, emerged in the last uh, decade or so. My scandals. Uh, there's something called late trading. What was happening is. Uh, Sometimes these mutual funds didn't enforce the rules well enough. Uh, you, would, you would tell your broker, uh, I'd like to withdraw money from the mutual fund. Uh, and the broker would then sometimes call um, after 4 p.m. and say, uh, uh, my client really asked me to uh, sell this at 10 a.m. this morning. I know it's 5 p.m., but you know, trust me, I'd like to get out. Uh, and mutual funds would let this happen. Then it turned out to be why is that abusive? If you're a mutual fund, then you get this call from a broker saying, uh, "Trust me, my client asked me to get out at 10 a.m. I know it's five. <laughs> Can we get out?" Uh, well, that turns out to be a bad practice because what ended up happening is people abused that. They would wait until five or six p.m. And they would observe what seems to be happening in the markets. And if it's going up, then they would say, we want to put money into the mutual fund. And if it's going down, they would say, we're trying to take money out of the mutual fund. You see how that, that hurts the other mutual fund investors? Because you do it strategically. You do <laughs> if you know the market is up, you, you're trading on, on stale prices, on old prices. So obviously, you can make money doing that. Uh, and this got a lot of attention in the newspaper, the, the late trading. Um, and uh, uh, there's another, uh, another variation on that called market timing. But it's basically the same thing, where uh, mutual funds were not enforcing the rules properly. And so some people were trading at that 4 p.m. price effectively after it. Uh, and so um, uh, but uh, they've cleaned up this act. And so I think that uh, mutual funds are a most trusted way of investing in the stock market. And most people won't invest in individual stocks anymore. Uh, they just go through mutual funds. There is another uh, kind of thing that has developed more recently, uh, and it's called an exchange-traded fund. Or an ETF. 
Uh, and these were created first. These are relatively new. Uh, these were created first at the American Stock Exchange in 1993. Uh, and they're different from a mutual fund. Uh, I didn't show them separately on this. They're much smaller uh, than mutual funds. But I believe they're less than a trillion dollars. They must be in one of these other categories up there. But um, exchange-traded funds are different than a mutual fund in that they are traded on a stock exchange. Um, and so the first, um, uh, the first exchange-traded fund was a company called the Spider. That's Standard and Poor Depository Receipt. But now there is a proliferation of, of uh, exchange-traded funds. So what is an exchange-traded fund? I think this is louder than you hear me all right, right? Uh, ex uh, Exchange-traded fund uh, is uh, well, as epitomized by the. This is the S and P 500. It's a portfolio that is managed according to rules. It's not judgmental, uh, and. Uh, you cannot call up the exchange-traded fund and say, I want my money back. <laughs> it's different from a mutual fund. If you get in, you would buy or sell an exchange-traded fund on the stock exchange. Uh, and so the, uh, uh, the fund is traded. Uh, the the, the exchange-traded fund holds a portfolio, like the spider holds a portfolio equivalent to the S&P 500. Uh, and they pay out dividends on that. But in the meantime, um, you can buy or sell shares in the fund on the stock exchange. They also have what are called creation units, uh, which are uh, in large denominations, like millions of dollars. And institutional investors can either create or redeem shares in the ETFs, but you as an individual cannot. All right? So if the creation unit is $1 million, then an institutional investor who is an authorized participant and has signed the right papers can, say, can go to the Amex and say, I want to create $10 million of new spiders. And then the Amex will say, that's 10 creation units. I'm saying, I, don't, I forget what it Spider's creation unit is, but let's say it's a million dollars. Then the, the Amex would say, all right, you have to give us the stocks in the S&P 500 uh, in the proportion that they are in the S&P 500 equal in value to $10 million. Uh, and um, that becomes uh, uh, one creation. And then they'll give the institutional investors the shares to sell. Conversely, the institutional investor can go to the Amex and say, I want to go the other way. I've got uh, you know, 10,000 shares of these ETFs. I want, I want the stocks back. So the, the, the institutional investor can present the shares to the Amex, and the Amex will then give them the shares in the S&P 500. That enforces the price of the ETF equal to the price of the underlying stock. So ETFs were designed so that the price of the ETF tracks Tracks the um, price of the underlying stocks. Uh, in contrast, there's things called closed-end funds, uh, which are similar, but they don't have the creation units. 
closed-end funds, the price of the fund on the stock market tends to go through either a premium or a discount, depending on the market. But ETFs tend to track well. That is, the price of the ETF uh, tends to correspond to the price of the underlying stock, whereas closed-end uh, mutual funds, I said closed-end funds, track poorly. And so ETFs is the new thing uh, that uh, uh, that has developed. I said I would talk about uh, personal trusts, uh, and I thought uh, this is something that um, uh, is um, of less, somewhat less uh, importance. But it's about a trillion dollars in our modern economy. Uh, so what is a trust? Uh, there's another form of institutional investing. Uh, okay. A trust is a. Uh, uh, it's often a department of a bank uh, that manages money uh, on behalf of a. Uh, uh, of a individual or family, uh, and uh, for example, suppose uh, your parents are concerned about you, and they don't trust you. <laughs> they trust the banker, not you. Uh, and there's a family fortune. Uh, maybe it doesn't have to be that big, but let's say it's a million dollars. They could give it to you, uh, but they might not. I don't know what your parents are doing. <laughs> They're doing this behind your back, maybe not telling you in great detail. Uh, but uh, of particular importance, I, as an example, is something called a spendthrift trust. Uh, I'm not spelling it right. T H R. Okay, wh what is a spendthrift? It's someone who can't save money and squanders it. So your parents can go to a bank and set up a spendthrift trust on your behalf, and the spendthrift trust will then uh, pay you an income for life. Or they could even go beyond your life. They could go, you know, to your children or whatever. Uh, but uh, that prevents you from squandering the money, from going to the casino <laughs> and gambling it away if your parents don't trust you. Uh, and so uh, you see the idea: the bank then will manage it for the rest of your life, and your parents will will die, and you will outlive them. But that money will be stuck in that trust, and you can't get it out because they set it up, and it's there. Uh, and so uh, uh, then the the manager of the trust is a fiduciary who is uh, by a contract is supposed to be managing in the interest of the child, the spendthrift child. Uh, and uh, of course, everyone, all these people will be dead before you are. Your parents will die. The person they talk to at the bank setting up the trust will die. Uh, but when you're 90 years old, there'll be someone at that bank, some person much younger than you, who was appointed in succession to manage your trust and will continue to pay you that income out of your trust. Now, there's another reason why your parents might be doing this. Uh, which you might not, be, you might be angry with your parents if they did this, right? Uh, but they might do it for another reason, and that is 
you could get married and get a divorce, okay? And they're worried about this uh, really awful person you married taking half of the family money when you get divorced, right? So they lock it up in a spendthrift trust, uh, and then after the divorce, the trustee will say, no way, I'm, you know, I'm bound to pay this person, not the wife or husband, <laughs> the amount of money for life. And it apparently works, so that's another reason why families will do this, because they don't want to give the money to the awful person you married. Uh, so, uh, in common law countries, trusts are, that's like the U.S. and the U.K., uh, trusts are well-defined in law, and a trustee has well-defined rights. Uh, if you are, and it doesn't have to be a bank, we allow, uh, you could have a friend of yours become a trustee. Uh, in common law countries, there's a nice segregation of the uh, assets in the trust and the assets of the trustee. So, suppose you ask your brother-in-law to serve as a trustee for your children, and then your brother-in-law gets into some bad financial situation and goes bankrupt. Courts will not be allowed to take the trust uh, that the brother-in-law is managing for your children. Okay. This wasn't so clear in uh, civil law countries such as in Europe. The typical trust in Europe has been that you would go to a bank uh, and the bank would manage the trust for you, but if the bank went under, you might lose the money. Uh, and uh, maybe there's more trusting of their banks in Europe. I think this is also changing. Uh, the law is uh, always changing. Uh, okay, now I wanted to come to pension funds, which are uh, the most important kind of uh, uh, institution. You can see up there, that's the $12 trillion. Uh, it doesn't include, this pension fund here does not include Social Security, which is of comparable magnitude. The government runs its own pension fund, in effect, called the Social Security System, and that's not shown here. So, uh, there's a lot of, uh, but, but pension funds are private uh, funds managing a portfolio of assets. The, the Social Security System does not manage a substantial portfolio of assets. Uh, the Social Security system, which is a, it's not on here, I'm just mentioning it as an aside, was set up by U.S. Congress in 1935 to provide for the elderly uh, and also for uh, disabled and uh, um, orphaned children. But this, the main Social Security provides for the elderly, but it does so without investing. It, there is something called the Social Security Trust Fund managed by the government, which invests in assets to help the government pay out on Social Security. However, the Social Security Trust Fund is only, last time I heard about, $1 trillion. So the government is not investing much compared to uh, these pension funds. Uh, so pension funds are much bigger. And these are, are agencies, private agencies, that invest uh, on behalf of people for their retirement. Uh, and they're a very important element of our economy. They, they help us solve the essential problem that everyone goes through the life cycle. You're young, you're healthy for a while, you're working, and then your health starts to deteriorate, and then you have years or decades when you are uh, 
either not uh, inclined to work or cannot work, uh, and this happens with such regularity that uh, it it uh, requires some kind of professional management, and that's what pension funds do. So I wanted to talk about these in some more detail. The, the, uh, it wasn't until the 19th century that we had them, uh, which is kind of surprising because it's such an important problem. And even in the 19th century, they were few and rare. Uh, but um, the uh, the first U.S. I think they go they go back earlier in the U.K. and in places in Europe, but uh, in the United States, the first corporate pension fund was American Express in 1875. American Express then was not a credit card company; it was uh, it was a uh, shipping company or. Uh, a transportation uh, company, uh, and this uh, first uh, pension fund was for the em was for the employees of American Express, uh, and the original terms were you had to work there for 20 years and pass the age of 60, and you had also to be disabled, uh, and if you satisfied those, if you were over 60, you had worked at American Express for 20 years. And also were disabled, uh, you would get 50 percent of the average pay for the last 10 years you worked there. This is uh, the earliest model in the U.S. Uh, and that uh, gradually became copied by more companies. Uh, it became more and more important as the 19th and we moved into the 20th century because life expectancy was going up. There were relatively few people. The life expectancy at 1900 was something like 45 years. I don't have the exact number. So 60 was a milestone that a lot of people didn't reach. Well, of course, other many did as well. So it's not. Uh, this was important even then, but uh, it wasn't. Uh, the original pension funds tended to be done for the benefit of the employer, in the sense that, like the American Express, you had to work there for all of 20 years. Uh, in order to get anything, it was all or nothing. If you worked there for 19 years, uh, then too bad, <laughs> you got nothing. Didn't seem well designed, but it was designed to keep people there. They didn't want people leaving, and so once you signed on to American Express, you were kind of stuck there because you didn't want to get out. Uh, you'd lose your pension. Um, so uh, the uh, it wasn't very big, but. Uh, uh, or big institution in um, Carnegie Steel Pension uh, pension plan was 1901. Andrew Carnegie, uh, which was a milestone because it started to um, establish the uh, principle on a. This was the first big company uh, to establish a pension fund, uh, and it grew uh, through the first uh, few decades of the. 19th century, uh, and by 1929, there were many pension funds. Uh, they started doing union pension funds, so there were the uh, cigar makers. Uh, that was a union, uh, or oh, granite cutters and cigar makers. 1905, um, locomotive engineers. <laughs> okay, I don't know if that was uh, I'll just uh, 1912. 
but these, many of these funds failed in 1929, uh, and they were offered by companies for their employees or unions uh, for their members. Uh, when companies offered pensions for their employees, that was a risky thing because companies go bankrupt. It happens all the time. And if they go bankrupt, how are they going to pay the pension plan? Well, that was tough luck for the employees. That was a less enlightened time. They didn't, the point was that they rarely funded the pension funds. In the early decades of the 20th century, Carnegie Steel just, or I don't know about Carnegie, but generally, they just promised to pay. They just said, we will pay you when you retire. And out of what, you might ask? Well, that wasn't explained, but it had to be out of profits. And what if they weren't making any profits? Well, they didn't an <laughs> people didn't seem to anticipate this. After 1929, uh, these, these um, pension funds became discredited because so many of them failed. Uh, and that led to uh, an uh, idea that we had to do something uh, different. So uh, the big milestone in pension history is the General Motors Pension Fund, uh, which uh, GM Pension, which was created in 1950, uh, and uh, it was uh, promoted by GM Chairman Charles Wilson. Uh, I visited them recently. They were in, in that building right. Uh, out across the street, <laughs> what is the Plaza Hotel, at the corner of Central Park, um, and they're uh, uh, a very big organization now. But the thing that GM Pension Fund did is it 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 invested, it, it funded, and they so they started investing money on behalf of the pensioners, so that if GM were to ever go bankrupt, there would still be money in the fund, uh, and not GM stock. This was the most amazing thing. People, that G General Motors was investing money for its pension fund, and of all things, it wasn't buying GM stock. <laughs> Some people thought, why wouldn't they buy their own stock? They would push the price up. But of course, it's not enlightened to buy their own stock because that would be stupid to invest the pension fund in your own stock because the stock would become worthless in the same circumstance that you would be unable to. Make good on the pension, so it wouldn't do any good. So it was uh, obvious. It seems obvious that companies should fund their pension funds and should invest in something other than their own stock. Uh, and so uh, uh, that may seem obvious, but it took until 1950. One thing that strikes me about financial history is that it seems like we go for such a long time. Doing things that are obviously not right, uh, and as long as there's no crisis, nobody pays attention to it. Then we have this huge crisis, like the 1929 stock market crash, and then it's only in after the crisis that anyone thinks about it. So I don't know what was happening for the first uh, 30 years of the 20th century. They had all these pension funds, but the whole idea seemed to be faulty, right? Why would you think that your company can support you in your old age? That's decades in the future. You know, the chance that your company will go under has to be substantial. Uh, but you know, people don't seem to see these risks, and they don't think about them until there's a big crisis. That's why I think that 
we are at an opportune time right now with another financial crisis, and it's a time when people might be willing to think about how to do things differently. Um, so, uh, the next big crisis in pension fund history was the uh, Studebaker default. 1963. Have you ever heard of Studebaker? <laughs> Some of you have heard of them. They uh, made cars. They were one of the big, I don't know how many car makers in the uh, 50s and 60s. Um, you probably still see these on the road, but they're getting quite rare <laughs> because that's 45 years ago. Uh, they were big for a while. Uh, anyway, they, the company went bankrupt uh, in 1963. And uh, now they claimed to have funded a pension plan. They were learning from GM, and they were investing a pension plan for their employees in assets that should have survived a bankruptcy, so they thought. Uh, but uh, after the uh, bankruptcy, it found out it that they had underfunded the pension plan. Okay, that means that. They didn't put enough money in uh, to pay what they promised to pay, so that while they had it, they just didn't, they didn't put enough in. So then people started getting angry, uh, obviously. People had worked their lives at Studebaker, promised that they were told that they had a funded pension fund, and when they went later, they found that they got nothing, or, or, or at least very much reduced. So if, uh, people started looking at the union. United Auto Workers. Isn't the United Auto Workers supposed to stand up for the rights of the, mem the employees? And shouldn't they be looking at the pension fund and demanding that Studebaker fund it adequately? Well, they were. They were asleep. They were not. They were asleep at the switch. Or some people accuse the UAW of complicity with Studebaker. That basically, the UAW was not paying attention to the distant future. Because they didn't think that their members really cared, so UAW wanted, when they had negotiations with Studebaker, they wanted big pay increases. Now they didn't care about funding the pension fund. Why didn't they care? Well, because the the workers at Studebaker didn't know or understand this, and so the workers were not attuned to this. So the union thrives on getting something that looks valuable to the employees. But the employees were being deceived, so that both Studebaker and the union were in, in it together against the employees, in a sense. So this created a lot of anger uh, about, about failures of pension funds. Uh, I'm talking about financial crises of years past. Uh, we're going through a subprime crisis right now, uh, and this is just one of a series. Every time we have a financial crisis, we make fixes. And so, in reaction to the Studebaker, it took, it took 10 years, uh, but the Studebaker default set in, in force a dialogue about how pensions should be uh, managed. And that led to uh, ERISA, uh, 1974, actually 11 years later. And ERISA uh, stands for Employment Retirement Income Security Act. All right, Employment Retirement Income Security Act, um, and uh, it then required funding. So it required uh, adequate funding. 
you, you, you know, Studebaker had a funded pension plan, but it was under, uh, underfunded. So that's what ERISA created. Um, and uh, they also created uh, the um, Pension Benefits Guarantee Corporation, the PBGC. This is a um, government uh, corp. Well, it's it's a government-sponsored enterprise that uh, uh, insures so pension benefit guarantee corp. The deal it's it's like the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which guarantees your bank deposit. Uh, it guarantees your pension plan. So the PBGC then receives dues from uh, pension plans, and the pension plans then, if they were to fail, uh, would get uh, the, the pensioners would get a payment from the PBGC. All right. So the PBGC is supposed to monitor the funds of pension plans, make sure that they're adequately funded, and then uh, if they are not adequately funded, then uh, they would make up the difference. Uh, now, ultimately, the PBGC has a portfolio of assets which it accumulates from the fees paid to it by the pension funds. Uh, that portfolio of assets might not be adequate in a huge crisis, uh, and so Congress might have to step in to uh, support the PBGC. Otherwise, the PBGC is not taking taxpayers' money. Recently, the PBGC has come under some um, attack because after the stock market, it's very hard to know whether a pension fund is adequately funded or not, right? Because it all depends on assumptions about asset prices. During the run-up of stock market in the 1990s, uh, fir firms started cutting back on the amount they contributed to their retirement funds because the the, the stock market had made them <coughs> had made their plans look very rich. Uh, and so uh, there were people like me claiming that it was a bubble, and that so the prices were not going to stay at this level. But it's kind of hard to make that prove that point. So companies in the late '90s uh, were not—they were putting their money in risky stocks and and saying they were adequately funded uh, when there were people like me who were doubting that, and the, the PBGC. Being a government organization, didn't protest uh, after the stock market came down. After 2000, it put the PBGC in jeopardy. Fortunately, the market went back up again and kind of uh, bailed them out. But uh, uh, the uh, ERISA Act also embodied something called the prudent person rule. Actually, in 1974, they called it the prudent man rule. Uh, that was because 74 was just before we tried to use non-sexist language. So the prudent man rule is now the prudent person rule. But I'll read what the ERISA said. The Act said, um, investments must be made with the care, skill, prudence, and diligence under the circumstances then prevailing that a prudent man acting in a like capacity and familiar with such matters would use in the conduct of an enterprise of a like character and with like aims. Well, that's lawyerese, but basically, what they're saying, 
the, the fundamental problem is that even if you get beyond the de deliberate underfunding of a pension plan, you still get the possibility that the pension managers will do something wild, like put everything in the stock market, or they could put leveraged investments in the stock market, and they could say, we're funded enough because with this huge, hugely leveraged portfolio, we should have enough money. But that wouldn't be prudent, right? And so if the government is guaranteeing pension plans, as, they're going to, as they, they started doing with the PBGC, then they, they've got to prevent that, uh, and so because they can't let companies just do wild investments. But this put the government in a funny circumstance because it was starting to tell these funds that they, that they had to be doing sensible investing. But what is sensible investing? It, it actually was a difficult thing to define. Look at Yale University. Back in when David Swenson came to Yale, uh, most universities put their money in sensible, safe government bonds, uh, and stocks were considered risky. But Swenson said, no, let's not do that. Let's put into these strange alternative investments. And after the fact, he turns out to be right, right? Was he not prudent? Do you want to tell investment companies that they shouldn't do that? It's a, it's a difficult question. And the question is, how far should a pension plan go in taking on ris risky investments? So the law created this strange prudent person rule, which says that an investment company should do whatever a prudent person would do. Um, and it created an unfortunate environment for pension fund management. Basically, they're telling pension fund managers, don't use your own judgment. Do what somebody else would do when you, know, you manage the portfolio. Uh, right? I mean, that's law. I mean, you've got to do this. It's in the law as a manager. Uh, and so uh, uh, it's, a, a, it's a slippery business to be in. So um, I have on the. It's actually, I don't expect you to go to read this because it's, it should be in the library. But Obar and Conley uh, wondered how pension funds deal with this strange situation they're put in. Uh, so this is Obar. And Conley, who wrote a book. One of these uh, is an anthropologist. So we're getting a little bit of insight from, I, I mentioned I like to take insights from all the different social sciences. Anthropologists like to go into some uh, primitive village somewhere in the world and interview people uh, who live in a, a very different culture and try to learn about them. And what an anthropologist does is goes into some village uh, and uh, doesn't disturb their, tries not to disturb their culture, doesn't start explaining things, just listens uh, and tries to understand how they think, has to learn their language and listen to their, and, and for presumably to get insights about human behavior uh, from the experience of uh, immersing oneself in some other culture. Uh, what, so uh, these people went to interview uh, pension fund managers <laughs> with the same techniques that anthropologists use in uh, primitive uh, villages. Uh, and uh, they concluded uh, that uh, pension funds uh, are, th th they were rather critical of pension funds. The, the pension funds are living in this strange world created by ERISA, which requires that they behave as somebody else would. <laughs> and so it kind of separates them from any real sense of their mission. They're, they're re regulated so heavily 
Uh, and so what Obar and Conley found is that they engaged people in discussion. They, they listened to what managers of pension funds would say on their own without suggesting the topic of conversation. And what they found was that managers uh, were very much aware of the prudent person rule uh, and that they were always looking to shift blame, possible blame. They were always thinking of some lawsuit that they could eventually be in, embroiled in, and they, they were always saying, well, this is what a prudent person would do. They talked a lot about the law and relatively little about economics or, uh, or the objectives that they're supposed to have about how do we get to uh, the management of um, how do we manage this portfolio to provide for the benefits to our employees in the future? Um, and uh, it's interesting that uh, as anthropologists, they took note of what anthropologists have noted in many primitive societies that if you let people living in some uh, isolated culture talk, they tend to uh, come up eventually with a creation myth. Okay, so this is a term that anthropologists use. Every primitive society, or you can a you can ask them, where did it all start, right? And they will they will generally have a story about the creation of their little village or their people, uh, which involves some great man or god that uh, <laughs> founded everything, uh, and there's some story about this person. Uh, and uh, a sense that we are the chosen people, that we're the, uh, we have some values, or <laughs> and it's built around a story of some great man or woman, I suppose. Uh, but uh, uh, what they said is that that's one of the things they heard most commonly: the creation myth. So they would say our pension fund was started by so and so 40 years ago, and this person had great insights, and we're living in this tradition ever since. Uh, so. Um, but uh, so, uh, uh, so uh, anyway, there, uh, ERISA came in at more or less the end of an era. There's, there are really two kinds of pension plans. There is a defined benefit. And defined contribution. There's a fundamental difference. A defined benefit pension plan tells you that the pension will pay you a certain amount. For example, I, I mentioned the very first U.S. pension fund, American Express. It promised to pay you. 50% of your average pay for the last 10 years that you were employed. Okay, so you were told this uh, when you started the job that this was your plan, uh, and so that defined the benefit you would get. Uh, until 1974, virtually all pension plans were defined benefit. Uh, there were some exceptions, but it was the overwhelming norm. Labor unions liked defined benefit. It sounded right to them. But the, the, the contrary kind is called defined contribution. In a defined contribution plan, the pension plan does not promise you anything about what your retirement income will be. They merely say that we are going to contribute 
your a fraction of your salary uh, to a, a portfolio that will be managed to provide you income when you retire. But the um, amount you get will be determined by the portfolio and not by uh, any arbitrary rule. There's nothing like you know, 50% of the last 10 years of your income. The defined contribution plans got their biggest impetus in 1981, so that's what, seven years after ERISA, with the advent of what was called 401k plans. 401k is a paragraph in the Internal Revenue Service Code. That's the tax, that's the IRS, the, the agency of the government that taxes. Uh, everyone. And uh, Section 401k of the IRS Code um, uh, defined circumstances in which uh, money held in trust for others might not be taxable. Uh, and in 1981, uh, for the first time, a company uh, invoked this clause to ask that the defined Contribution plan that they were setting up would not be taxed. Uh, the uh, well, actually, what to make it clear what it would be is if the employer or employee made contributions to the plan, then there would be no tax. That that would be a tax um, deduction for the amount of the contribution until later, after the person retires, it would be taxed many years later. As ordinary income when they received it, but by postponing the tax, it was a significant tax advantage. So after 1981, there was a tremendous revolution in our tax, uh, in our pension system, because uh, it led. Uh, first of all, people like tax breaks, and it sounds good to get a tax break. But secondly, um, people start unions were declining. Unions, which had always advocated defined benefits, were declining as a force in the U.S., and people were developing in the United States more of an investment culture, and they liked the idea that they would have a defined contribution plan where there would be a portfolio, which is theirs, which is being invested for their retirement, rather than trust the company to provide a benefit in retirement. So the general public showed a strong preference for defined contribution plans after 1981, and so that is a big force. The U.S. was a leader in defined contribution plans, but it is now spreading all over the world, uh, and I think it again reflects a change in our world culture. So they are growing in Europe and and uh, in other. I guess Mexico's uh, Chile. There, there's so many of the uh, pension plans now are. Of the defined contribution variety, even uh, government pension plans. So the government social security plan in Chile uh, allows uh, invests for you, uh, and it, there's a portfolio, and you can get on a website. I understand. I've never done it in Chile, but you can see what the balance is in your account. Another thing that defined contribution plans began to do with the advent of 401k is they would allow you as a uh, employee or, or as the pensioner to choose the general categories of investments. So there would, there would typically, in a defined contribution plan after 1981, 
there would be a number of mutual funds that you could invest your pension money in. And though you couldn't take it out until you retired, you could choose which from a selected list of mutual funds um, you could invest your money in. So this helped promote mutual funds dramatically, uh, and it also tr created more of an investment culture in our society. So, uh, so uh, that's where we are now. Uh, the defined benefit pension plan is declining rapidly. ERISA is it's still not irrelevant because they're still important, but ERISA is becoming less and less important, and we're moving on toward a, a country. When you get your first job, the first thing you will get, I can predict, will be a 401k plan, <laughs> and uh, you will probably not be given a uh, defined benefit pension. <coughs> <coughs>